0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Um, so we are on question 26 this morning, and we um, This is, uh, we're in the the bigger frame, Uh, question 23, I believe it was, asked uh, this mediator, this um, redeemer, Jesus Christ, um, how does he execute this? Uh, work of mediating for people, saving his people. And it says he executes the office of prophet, priest, and king. So he has a a, a prophetic work, a priestly work, a kingly work, while he's in a state of humiliation and exaltation. So three offices, two estates, and we've been working through these three offices. There's one question for each, and then starting next week, we'll look at humiliation and then exaltation. Um, And I'll I'll just say, so you can prepare yourselves, um, you'll be, I'll be with you guys for the next four or six weeks, roughly teaching you just about, I think every week, um, because pastor Wright will be, I think on vacation next week. And then the week he gets back, uh, he'll be doing the inquirer's class. So if you want to learn more about Redeemer, that's a great place to go talk to, uh, you know, pastor Wright will do a four week class on that. Um, and so he'll be doing that. And so I'll be with you guys, I think, through October. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, maybe it's a week, a month for you to volunteer in nursery or tri- uh, children's Sunday school if you'd prefer. Um, all right. So we are on question 26. Um, any other preliminaries before we dive into the text? All right. Well, let us dive into the text um, with our catechism. And they're also online, too. You can get a. Pull them up on your phone. There's great apps, all kinds of um, resources online. So here we are. Question 26, and I'll just read it for us. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So Christ is our king, and that's what the topic of this question is. And so before we walk through it a little more systematically, I'm going to put up a plethora of scripture passages and highlight a few pieces of each one as it speaks to Christ's kingship. What does it mean that Christ is king? So first begins, uh, we'll begin in Matthew 28 here. Matthew 28, uh, beginning verse 18, you will know this passage, the Great Commission, it's often called. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So there's this statement of authority. I have all authority. I'm the king. It's given to me. Therefore, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the authority that Christ has, we'll say as king, reflective of this kingly office, he now gives a commission to his disciples to go and to then take the gospel to the ends of the earth and with the particular instructions there. So uh, Jesus has all authority. Next is Ephesians chapter 1. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So lots of language here of royal, kingly, uh, ruling, reigning, authority language. He's seated. That's regal language. The king sits and makes his decrees. Uh, He's seated at the right hand of the father in the heavenly places. And he's above all rule and authority, all other earthly powers, all other spiritual powers. He's seated with authority over them and above every name that is named, uh, not only in this age, but the one to come. So there's this future orientation to his kingship. And he, the father put all things under his feet. And that's a reference to Psalm 2. He is now the king who reigns and has all things under his feet. He's head over all things. Um, and given him to the church. We'll come back to that concept in a few moments. Colossians 1, for by him, all things were created. This is Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So any ruler that is there is, has been even created by Christ. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So there's that headship uh, ruling uh, language as well. Christ is head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in in everything he might be preeminent. Again, kingly, royal language used there. And this is the last one I'll uh, end on for now. We'll come back to other passages in a little bit. Uh, John 18, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So he says, clearly, I have a kingdom. I am king, and it's not of this world. It doesn't belong to this world. Uh, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So he has a spiritual kingdom, we'll come back to in a moment. Um, Okay, so we have some of these uh, biblical ideas on the table. And so What's, what's interesting about the question that we have here, 26, says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Um, and, and here, uh, there's two ways, though, of speaking of Christ's kingship. And the question is really speaking about only one. So I want to take a step back to say, what do we mean by the kingship of Christ to begin with? And historically, we have spoken, especially in the Reformed tradition, of a twofold kingship And I'll explain um, in the next, in this slide, what we're speaking of with this twofold kingship. So Christ first has what we call an essential kingship. He essentially, because of his essence, of his divinity, he is king over all things. Uh, Gerhardus Voss says it this way, as sharing in the divine being, Christ also possesses from eternity the royal power over all creation that belongs to God. This continues with his true deity through all that befalls him. So Jesus Christ is God. This is the God-man, this eternal son of God taking human flesh. The eternal son of God is forever and ever king of the universe. That's not what the Shorter Catechism is speaking of here. It's not denying that. It's speaking about Christ's kingship in another sense. So we want to step back and say, well, of course he's king because he's God. And that's exactly right. That's speaking of the essential kingship. It is essential to his being God, that he is king over all, sovereign over all, ruling over all things from before the foundations of the world. This extends to all creation for the purpose of preserving creation now at this point until all the elect have been called to Christ. And so the purpose of this kingship, this essential kingship, is to preserve the world so that the elect would be called in, so that more would come to Christ. So it's a preserving kingship. And we see this, go back to the Noahic covenant. Uh, God says, promises that the world will remain until the end that there will be seasons and the moon will, will come every night. And you know, the, the day and the night, um, the seasons will continue. God is preserving the world. And so Christ as God is preserving all things, preserving creation so that redemption can unfold. So it's the stage, uh, God is preserving the stage upon which the play of redemption unfolds. Um, And we can often speak of this as common grace. Through God's common grace to all people, he's not striking all unbelievers dead or else we would all be stricken dead before we came to faith in Christ. God is patient and kind and waiting for us to come to him, waiting for the fullness of time for Christ to return. Um, And so this kingship, this sphere of, of rule includes government, arts, culture, anything that we all share in common with everybody, including unbelievers. So God is king over everything. God is king over government. Christ is king over government. Um, Christ is king over arts, king over education, king over all of these things, um, according to the essential kingship here. All right, and then um, let me go to the other type of kingship now as the shorter catechism unfolds this. And we're speaking here of what has been called the mediatorial kingship. But Christ as mediator, Christ coming to redeem his people, how does he now rule in a special way? Because we see overwhelmingly most of these passages we just read are speaking of a special kind of rule Christ now has now that he has died and then ascended, um, mostly. He was king during, um, before he ascended into heaven. Um, as well. But that's not the emphasis in this mediatorial kingship. So this is an office of king bestowed upon the God-man. So this is now human flesh ruling. So where we can say the essential kingship is not human flesh ruling. This is God ruling. We now see in the mediatorial kingship, the redemptive kingship, that human flesh, the divine human union in Jesus Christ we have flesh ruling. It's bestowed upon him, this kingship given to him, Christ our mediator. And this goes back to the Ephesians passage that we read. And we can say this is a redemptive kingship, or we can say a spiritual kingship. Now, it's not spiritual to say it's immaterial, but it's spiritual to say it's, it's worked by the Holy Spirit. This is a special kingship that is, um, is wrought by the Spirit. It's not to say it's only immaterial or to say it's only in our hearts or anything like that. But this is distinct from um, the rule of the sword that, the, that the, uh, the government has. The government has a rule by the sword. It can coerce. But here we have the spirit working redemption. The spirit doing these things as Christ is king. And so there's a couple different language, a couple different words we'll use here uh, to describe this. We talk about the kingdom of grace. Um, in Westminster 102, this talks about uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. And it starts to pa- uh, parse out what does kingdom mean? And those concepts are helpful here and now also. It talks about the kingdom of grace may be expanded. Kingdom of grace is Christ reigning primarily through his church to redeem people. To come, that they would come to Christ by his spirit, giving them new hearts. And it's, as I mentioned, it's, it's manifest most clearly in the church. So Christ is king and head of the church. That's the primary kingship of this mediatorial kingship of which the confession speaks. Christ is king of the church, but we'll also see that it is, he is ruling over the entire world as the mediator, but in Ephesians, it says he's put, um, as, uh, let me go back to the, to the language. Whoops. Wrong way. Wrong way. No, no. There we go. Um, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So he's head over all things to the church. So he is a king over all things. But the purpose of this mediatorial kingship over all things is for the sake of the church. The church is the center of the bullseye here. With the purpose of his kingship. And so there is an, a generic reign over all things that Christ as mediator exercises. And the, the catechism and the confessions will call this the kingdom of power. He exercises power over all things uh, for the purpose of his kingdom of grace, which is the church, which is this place, which is among his redeemed people. All right, I'm almost done. And then we'll, we'll open up here in a moment. Um, And then this mediatorial kingship has a future. And again, the confession of the catechism calls it a kingdom of glory. The whole world will be redeemed when Christ returns. Uh, This is future oriented in in glory. We will be with Christ. Revelation 11, 15 says, "Then Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And so we see in this, that kingdom of grace now expanding over everything. There's the kingdom of the world is turned now into the kingdom of grace when Christ returns. That's when everything, he makes all things new at that point in time. When he exercises redemptive dominion over everything. But that redemptive dominion does require judgment of that which remains and that which is sinful. So there's judgment and then everything will be redeemed that remains, including uh, the, this physical world as well. And then we see uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, that kingship will be given uh, over to the Father. That kingdom will be given over to the Father. It's an interesting passage. Let me read this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses, beginning of verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it his coming those who belong to Christ. And then... Um, this is the, the verse here, verse 24. Then comes the end. So this is Christ the firstfruits. Then we all, you know, will raise from the dead. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and, every, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so that is this kingdom of glory coming to full fruition where Christ reigns over all things. And then there's this interesting passage. He gives it to his father. Now, what does that mean? We don't know exactly. This is probably the only place scripture that hints at this idea. Um, And people have different theories of where this goes. But the purpose is, the, the point here is Christ rules. Christ will put all the enemies under his feet and Christ will redeem all that remains, all of his people, completely and finally all this world he will redeem it all and then in some sense it will be given to the father Um, and does his kingship terminate at that point in time Uh, there are people who debate that I would think probably not um, but then it just depends on what we mean there in, or what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, that's a lot there. This twofold kingship of Christ. One belongs to him essentially as God. He rules over all things, sovereign from before the creation of the world. And then over here, there's the mediatorial kingship. And that's the God-man, the incarnate son of God now is given a special office of redeeming as the king. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll pause there. That's a lot. All right, John. And so then when we say that if we say that the devil is the kingdom of the world, the king of the world, or the speaking of the spirit of the world, then that makes sense in contrast to his mediatorial king, kingship, where he's Christ is king of the church, and the church is against the world and Satan's king of the world, but then this kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God. Satan will be fully thrown down. Yeah, that's right. It's Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the question is, what does kingdom of the world mean? Does it mean Satan and his particular evil rule or does kingdom of the world mean um, the the generic uh, uh, ruling of God over all things? And that will then all be redeemed. Um, But you're right that Satan does rule the, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him, and that kingship will be destroyed by Christ on the last day. Um, and that's exactly right. And that's part of this kingly rule is we'll see he, he will conquer all of his and our enemies. And that's conquering Satan, ultimately. What else? Yeah, Rob? Um, can you speak to, like, our, our government is kind of crazy right now and Christ is king over that. So <laughs> how, how does that connect? Yeah. And you're talking about uh, Christ conquering our enemies will that be like that or is he conquering? yeah, good question. We'll come back to the conquering enemies in a moment. Just talking about Christ as king essentially over even government right and how how does how does that work out when government looks uh, not so uh, favorable to Christ these days right um, I'll say a few things. one, it's nothing new uh, for government to be that way when Christ when Paul was writing uh, Romans Nero was uh, soon thereafter uh, dipping Christians in tar and putting them on pillars and lighting them on fire to light his garden parties, right? So that's not very favorable to Christ either. Um, and we've seen in the history of the world, we live in a very uh, unique place, a very unique age, where for many years, Christianity has been a privileged, um, a privileged place in society. Um, and uh, for, for many reasons, good and bad, um, And we see the decline of that. And now we say, okay, what does this mean about Christ's kingship? Is Christ really king? As we see maybe a decline, we see a movement away from Christ in society. What does that mean? And I would say just historically speaking, we've been in a unique place. And I think we're just going back to a little bit what's been normal for most people in all times and all places. Um, And so I guess I'm lamenting it a little bit less from the theological perspective. Practically, it's hard. Practically, we have to think about our kids. Practically, we think about how do we live in the world now differently than we did 50 years ago. But um, I don't think that has anything to do with Christ's reign uh, being um, minimized or Christ reigning over all things. Uh, it, it, I don't think it, it's detracting from that at all. Because every ruler will give an account to Christ, not only how they live their personal life and morally being responsible to God for their personal life. Every ruler will give an account to God for how they governed because they must govern in accordance with God's law, with the moral law of God. And insofar as they don't do that, they're, being, they're going to be called to account on the final day. And so they are culpable for their sin as governors as well. And so they will be called to account for it. Um, so is that addressing? Okay. I got a thumbs up. So that's good. All right, Jim. Would it be uh, fair to say, though, that the mediatorial kingship is really underneath the essential kingship? embedded in it as opposed to being a of separate? because he preserves it it's under its for his creation to yeah. become the elector part of the mediatorial kingship piece so why would it be really embedded right so you're saying the mediatorial kingship is embedded within the essential kingship and i think that's fine i think it's fine um, to say i'm not i'd have to think about that a little bit more the the difference though is the goals of both of them are different at this point in time the goal of the essential kingship is that preservative function primarily um is to keep uh, the world afloat, so that the medial, mediatorial kingdom can go forward, so that kingdom of grace can go forth to the ends of the earth. So their their goals are different, um, and their end is different. Um, but I think that's fine because you ultimately you're right. It is under God's ultimate sovereign umbrella, His kingship overall, that the mediatorial kingship can thrive and grow. And so I think that I think that's right and 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 a good way to say it. What else? So we're doing with like, uh, this is the preliminary before we get to the text so that we can locate the text of the confession here in, uh, in this mediatorial kingship. And so question 26 is asking, how does Christ exercise this mediatorial kingship now? So we're not talking about the essential kingship because yes, because the, the answer, well, okay, if we read this question, um, Christ is king, ruling, defending us, subduing us, Restraining? Well, he's God. Of course, he does all that. And yes, that's right. According to the essential kingship, he is God. But we're speaking here in a particular redemptive way, and so that's why I thought it's important to to set the table with this, so we understand. Question twenty-six comes under this mediatorial kingship of Christ. So let's look at the text of question twenty-six, and let's look at uh, a few of these phrases that come up here. So Christ executes the office of a king um, in three ways primarily is what what's spoken of in the shorter catechism the larger catechism goes into much more detail um, but the three ways here first is subduing us to himself subduing us to himself so this speaks of the king conquering first us the king has to subdue us and i love that language um, it's 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 this picture of Um, you know, a wild horse that's being broken in, right? Christ comes and breaks us in. It's a spirit who subdues us. We're running off on our own. And it's Christ who comes in and calls us back and says, no, I'm not letting you run after the world. Your spirit is, my spirit is coming in you to make you, give you a heart of flesh that will now let you love me and look to me. And so Christ's kingship, personally, we can say, begins with him subduing us. John 17, Uh, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there's authority that all flesh, right? There's that, that authority over, over all things. I think this is speaking of the mediatorial kingship, the kingdom of power, but the purpose of his kingship over all flesh is that we use the language specifically to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the son gives eternal life. He has authority now to give eternal life as the king. And he subdues, overcomes our sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And it is the king that comes by his spirit and gives us a heart to look to him and trust in him. I love, again, I love that word subdued. Um, Acts 5, 31, um, it says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That word translated leader can be translated prince or ruler or head. So God gave, exalted Jesus to his right hand as the head, as the ruler, as the prince, as the king and savior. He's king. Why? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Christ is king. And the act of our own coming to Christ is Christ exercising his kingship. Do we think of it that way? That's Christ's kingship ruling and conquering, subduing us. And there's also the ongoing work of Christ as our king by his spirit produces ongoing repentance and turning to Christ more and more. That sanctification process is Christ's kingship being exercised in our lives. Um, We'll pause there. What uh, questions, comments? Christ subduing us. Um, fascinating how it's a, that is a mark of sanctification, that the word like subduing and su- submitting yes. becomes sweet to us. That's right. The world has twisted it so much. That's right. And that we, we should be our own person. You know? Yeah. And uh, it's a mark of God's you know, working in our heart to that that becomes a good thing. Yeah. So good. I love that. Thank you. It is a sweet thing to be subdued by the gracious king more and more. All right, let's look at the second point here. uh, The second aspect that's highlighted in the catechism regarding the kingship of Christ, and it is his ruling and defending us. So Christ rules us. So the king not only subdues, but now he rules us and he defends us. I'll pull uh, from here Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, speaking of Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Christ has given officers, his apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for the purpose of equipping the saints to build us up and to encourage us in Christ. And so Christ is the one giving these things. And these officers are the means by which Christ rules his people. Christ rules his people through officers. And that's where we also see in the great commissions we read earlier. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, I commission you disciples go representatives of the church. The church is to go. The church as an institution has a sending function is to go and proclaim Christ. Because Christ uses the church, its officers, to rule his people. The larger catechism speaks of, in in this aspect, Christ giving laws and um, censures to the church. So embedded here is Christ as king ruling us, giving us laws, giving us officers, and giving us censures. And we see this in Matthew particularly. We go to Matthew 18, where it speaks of uh, sin between Christians, among Christians. And we're called, yes, privately, go deal with it. If somebody sinned against you, go confront them. If they don't respond, then you're supposed to take somebody with you to confront them. If they don't respond, then we take the church to them. And if they don't respond, then they're to be... Excommunicated; They're no longer continued or to continue a part of the church because they will not repent of their sin. And so we see Christ ruling his church, keeping his church pure through officers, through the, uh, the governing body of the church. And so that is Christ as king ruling us and defending us because part of this function of the offices are to defend us from false teaching, to defend us from uh, bad theology, um, not that officers tell us what to think, but we are to keep out from the church anything that is impure, doctrinally, and we are to only have the truth proclaimed. Um, Revelation three nineteen, Christ is speaking here, and he says, who, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So Christ is ruling us by disciplining us. And we use this term church discipline and we speak of it um, maybe more often than many churches do here at Redeemer. Discipline here first has a big picture aspect, right? He disciplines us by, by constantly, as every time we come back to the word, we're called to obey. The whole Christian life is the is process of discipline. Every time we show up at church, we're being disciplined. We're being called to obedience, called to faith called to follow Christ more and more. So we're being disciplined constantly. But I think here, discipline also has that narrow sense of which we particularly think of when somebody is in unrepentant sin and they refuse to come back to, to God. And so the church must go after them and discipline, even as we saw in, in as we see in Matthew 18, even to the extent of saying, you no longer can call yourself a Christian because you are not following Christ. Now we don't have the authority to, we, we don't know ultimately what's in somebody's heart, but we have to judge by the fruit. And we can say, you'd show no fruit of being a Christian. And that is actually Christ's loving action, loving rule over his people to do that. And so church discipline is Christ loving his people. Now, of course, it can be abused, and we have mechanisms for checks and balances and appeals and all that to make sure it's not being abused as best as humanly possible. But ultimately, it's Christ's love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So Christ rules and defends us. What are your comments here? We'll pause for a moment. Might you give us one or possibly two examples of that fruit? Of the fruit of repentance? Living the Christian life. Oh yeah. So the fruit of living the Christian life, I mean, I would say is uh, the fruit of the spirit, right? The, the spirit working in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, growing in these ways um, and growing into being more godly and Christ-like in particular these ways. But also when we fail, when we fall in sin, as we all will, acknowledging, turning from it unto God. That's repentance. It's forsaking our sin, hating our sin, and turning from it unto God. And so uh, there's the the two aspects, dying unto sin, hating my sin, turning unto God. Every time I I fall and I hate it, I turn to God and Christ, and then more and more bearing fruit of the Spirit. Um, Is that what you're asking? Is there there more you want to add to that? That's sufficient. Okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) Uh, Mark. I was going to say that God uses means subduing us. May that be church, may it be church discipline mm-hmm. to drive us back. Into the That's right. That's right. Exactly. And we see Christ's particular appointment of officers. Um, we don't just do officers because we think it's a good idea. We think it's actually Christ appointing officers through the congregation, through means of the congregation, but appointing officers. Um, and those are the means Christ, we see scripturally Christ using to guide and lead and rule his people. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, Jonathan. Is this a big paradigm shift to see the Great Commission as not explicitly directed toward every individual believer as much as in the sense of uh, the church and its officers? And that, for me, is a, a was kind of a relief um, yeah. because I always kind of saw it as. I mean, I read David Platt's book Radical. And many of us did, and, and I got this feeling like if I'm not living like the apostles were in every way. I'm not quite being faithful. Meanwhile, we're called in different vocations, and we're not all called to be apostles and evangelists, And so, it's kind of refreshing for me to realize that this is the mission of the church, which I get to be a part of and bear witness to the the truth. At the same time, not all are called to the same office. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think that's, that is an important, and it, and I grew up in places where it was that heavy law of how many people did you share Christ with this week? If you didn't share, you know, with five people, then you might not even be a Christian yourself. And this, this burden upon your shoulders of, you know, I, I've got to, I, this is me that I, has to do this in my own power. Uh, I'm the only one that Christ gave this commission to, and it's up to me to make sure it happens. Um, I don't think that's the right way to read it, as you said, Jonathan. This is Christ commissioning the church. The church, we are called as a, as the officers particularly as representatives, the officers who are called particularly, particularly to herald the gospel are called particularly to do this. Now, we all have a part to play, as you said, Jonathan. We all have a role in that. But um, this is the church's commission. And we are to upbuild the church for the purpose of that. As I look at the scripture. The biggest scriptural commands that I can see is to live in such a way that it actually brings glory to Christ and then be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks you. That's right. By the two things that every Christian, no matter if they're a slave, an illiterate slave, or a That's slave, right. can, can, can do. Amen. And any, in any field. But that I agree that the church, like a, a central focus of the church, should be the proclamation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's right it doesn't remove it from the church it just brings it to the church corporate and so right we can order use our resources to organize it that's and focus right on it in way. that's right and we speak of evangelism i love um j.i. packer who talks about having an enterprising love for our neighbor because if we don't love our neighbor we're not going to share the gospel but if we have an enterprising love we're going to want to find ways that they hear the gospel and we ought to have an enterprising love for our neighbor. And so maybe, maybe you, know, you don't feel equipped to talk about Christ in, um, in, a, in a very deep and articulate way. I would say, you probably know more than you think, and I'd probably want to push you a little bit out of your comfort zone to do that a little bit more. But you can also bring them to church and say, hey, what did you think about that? Let's have a conversation about what you heard. Right? You can do that as well. Um, I know some churches... Um, Family members in, in churches that uh, their big thing is they go, they go uh, split up in the neighborhood and knock on doors. Um, and they basically make everybody in the church, you've got to go knock on doors and share the gospel and invite them to church and pray for them. Um, and hey, I think that's great. I'm not against that. But then when they get to the point of, you're not really part of our church if you don't do that. I think that gets to your point, John. No, we're, we're called to be faithful to Christ. Some of us are gifted and can knock on doors. And if we're not knocking on doors, we're neglecting the gifts God's given us but we don't all have that gift, and that's okay. We're not, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach. We have to have an enterprising love for our neighbor, and that should, should drive us um, to either share the gospel with them or um, have them hear the gospel in one way or another. Um, anyway, I'm rambling, going a little off on a tangent here, but I think there's important stuff. I think the challenge, uh, it's beautiful to read this and understand that you know, the flip side of this is I'm a subject. Mm-hmm. And so, as a subject, living in a republic and a democracy with fierce independence and all that, understanding that that's my natural state. Right. So I am a subject to the king, and then what is my role in following him and dying of him? That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, we are subjects, and um, he lays down, again, the larger catechism says this specifically, he gives us laws. And that, you know, deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. All the moral laws of scripture are laws for us to obey. We're called to obey these things. We're called to be faithful to our king. Um, the king does reign and have loyal, he has loyal subjects who follow him. And that is now the Christian life. Now that's not how we become subjects, but now that we are subjects, we are to follow him. He subdues us to make us, makes us his subjects. And we're not proving our, our worthiness of being his subjects, but now we are his subjects and we faithfully follow king. That's a, a great point, Jim. Thank you. All right, well, oh, yeah. I want to go back to something. Great. When you are talking about your subjects, where does prayer come in as far as maybe you're, you're exerting your desire mm-hmm. to have, for instance, a lady who for 12 years was with whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she asked Christ or yeah that's is that subduing or are we subduing by saying well this is his will so we'll just let it happen the way it happens. right right so the question is subduing us with regard to prayer and our will our desire for things and god's will and how do those things work together is that is that right yeah no i, I that's a great question um I love the the shorter catechism when it gets to prayer. It says, what is prayer? Prayer is offering up of our desires to God. So Lord, I want this thing to happen. I desire to be healed. I desire these things. But the confession, the catechism says, offering up our desires for things agreeable to his will. So we're offering our desires, but submitting them to God's will. Saying, Lord, I I want to be healed. Lord, I, I want to be better, to feel better. I want this... Relationship to be mended, not my will, but yours be done. That, those were Christ's words, right? And so we submit to his will, knowing as the good king, he's not a, uh, a malicious, a capricious king. He's a good king who loves his children, uh, loves his subjects, loves his sheep. And so we can trust him. And so that subduing aspect, some of the subduing aspect is. Um, as we're praying, as we're praying, he is subduing us even through our prayers as he is molding us. Um, we, we speak of prayer as a means of grace in a sense. And our praying is molding and shaping us. And the Lord uses that to help us grow more Christ-like. Um, so we'll go one and then and, two. And he also uses, I mean, he tells us in Romans 8.28 that he will work this out for our good. That's right, exactly. So that's where our faith has to that's right. That's right. <laughs> so essentially you're still subduing, even though you're asking for something. That that's right. To be that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And he is still subduing us, even, even when he grants us what we, what we desire. It's the good king who's granted us. It's not because we're so great. Um, but the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So God does hear and listen to our prayers and delights to hear our prayers. So this is to not to say don't pray, but this is to say take all of your desires to the Lord and seek that it's in accord with his will. Melissa? Well, I mean, we wouldn't even be submitting ourselves if he wasn't already doing that subduing work in us. We wouldn't have any right desires if he wasn't putting them in us to be Great committed. point. That's exactly right. We So we wouldn't desire his will be done if he wasn't subduing us to even desire that in the first place. Yeah, very well. Very well said. I love it. Did I see a hand? Yeah. Yep. That's right. That God is I don't need to pray, That's right. Need to pray, so some doing is obeying, pray That's right. And is exactly. Well said. Very good. Very good. All right. This last point here uh, in the next two or three minutes. Um, whoops. Um, so he says, uh, the, the catechism says, Restraining all—oh, let me get the exact language. I uh, uh, alighted some out. And restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So restraining and conquering enemies. Um, it's interesting. It says his and our enemies. Uh, I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 and um, a, few, a few passages just briefly. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-five through 27. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So um, he is reigning and he will put all enemies under his feet. He will conquer all of his enemies. Uh, this is a promise. And Psalm 2, the father, so there's, there's some dialogue going on in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9, the father is speaking to this king, Jesus Christ, ultimately, It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is Christ ruling the world and defeating all the enemies of the world, all the the evil nations and kings Christ will defeat. And then the father speaks about the king later in Psalm 2. He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So taking refuge in the king, We now have all the benefits of his conquering. The conquering is now ours as well because we are the subjects of the king. And there's blessing when we take refuge in him. And it's interesting, he says, all his and our enemies. And we can ask the question, okay, so who are our enemies? Are they different from God's enemies? I don't think that's the case. I think they're actually identified as the same here. All of his enemies are our enemies. Um, Now, in this life, we're not called to exercise the sword with regard to God's enemies. Those who hate God, what are we called to do? We're called to love our enemies, in this, in this world. But Christ is king. When he returns, he will conquer his enemies. And there will be a time in which judgment will now be rendered against the enemies of God. But it's Christ who will be doing that uh, through his own power and through his own um, uh, agency. It is not now. But he is restraining them now. Uh, in, evil could be far more rampant than it is, believe it or not. Um, in this world. He's restraining evil. He's restraining the enemies. He's restraining Satan. Satan is cast into the pit for a time. And then he will be ultimately defeated when Christ returns. So restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Any comment here before we finally wrap up? Jonathan? Light of this. New Covenant Christians sing and pray the imprecatory psalms. Ah, great. Yes, we can sing and pray imprecatory psalms. Psalms that call um, for curses upon God's enemies. Can we pray for that? Yes, but we understand it in an, Eternal light. We don't mean it right now. That you know, this person who I really don't like at work. Will you, you know, bash the the skulls of their children on rocks? No. We're praying it in the in the big scope of Christ's return of eternal life. We're praying that ultimately, will justice be done? So we pray it in that light. Not even in the right here, right now. So we do pray that. Great question. And there's a lot more worth worth uh, talking about down there. Okay. Um, we'll start with Rich, and then we'll go back, and we'll be done. Concepts are showing Christ's interactions, how he deals with his covenant people. Yeah, we would be well instructed to remember to go back to the Old Testament and see how he dealt with the people of Israel yeah. coming right out of Egypt and taking them through the wilderness. He was doing the same thing. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And we might find we have a lot more in common with those people than we realize. Very good. Amen. Yeah, I'm struck um, as how each of these were executed in this office on the cross. Yes. So he subdues us, calls us his, and we are his. That's right. salvation. He sets the new standards that come in place. He rules us in this new standard. And he conquered his enemies. That's right. All wrapped up. That's exactly right. And he is king, the question 23, both in his state of humiliation, exactly what you're talking about, and exaltation. So this isn't just the ascended Christ who's king. This is Christ incarnate before he died. And as he died, he's still king. What was hanging above his head on the cross, the king of the Jews, ironically stated, but it was no less true that day than it was the day he rose from the dead. And that's the king that we serve and that we love. Let's pray and prepare for worship. Father, what a glorious thing that you have given us a king, Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death, and oh, we await his final return and final conquering of all of his and our enemies. Bless us as we consider these things to be more grateful, to be more submissive, to see your love shown forth in Christ, our king. So we look to you and praise you for your greatness and for the greatness of our king. In Christ's blessed name we pray, amen.